Hello, welcome to No Guitar Is Safe. Amazing players, amazing playing, amazing stories. I'll do anything to get a great guitar player on this show last week. Went all the way to New York City. Okay, I was there anyway. And, you know, went to New Jersey just across the water. Hung out with Charlie Hunter, the amazing seven-string jazz funk pioneer. Got some great reactions from that episode. That was episode 28. What's episode 30 going to be? Man, should I tell you now? Okay, I'll tell you because I'm so excited about it. One of the greatest rock guitar players in history, in my opinion. Damn, I don't even know what to say about him. Steve Stevens, love this guy. You know him from Billy Idol. And also, if you haven't checked out his solo records, just got to dive in. They're excellent. Steve Stevens, what a hero. So yeah, if you're listening on SoundCloud or something, it's time to step up your game and subscribe like on iTunes or like on your iPhone's podcast app or whatever phone you have, you know, wherever you get your podcast, hit subscribe. You can just listen while you're using other apps or while you're going on your hikes or working out or redoing your pedal board, driving, commuting. If there's any one of those tragic moments or periods of time when you don't have your guitar in your hand, well, you should have no guitar safe in your ears. All right, today... Our guest has an amazing double album that just came out today. Should be available. It's from your pal Steve Vai, and it's a really cool two-album package. One album is Passion and Warfare, remastered 25 years later, special edition. You're going to hear stuff like For the Love of God. Passion and Warfare is what you call a high water mark in the history of instrumental guitar albums. At least that's what I said in the uh, cover story. That's right, this interview, I figured I'd take you with me when we interviewed Steve Vai for the cover story of the June 2016 Guitar Player magazine. And of course, the reason I waited to put out the podcast is because we wanted to do so when the album was released so that we could play you samples of it. Oh, so juicy. So the new files sound amazing. I have the Wave versions because Steve Vai made sure that his engineer, his right-hand man in the studio, Greg Wirth, sent them over to me. And I can report that both albums in this two-album package sound incredible. Mastered by Bernie Grunman. Wow. Of course, this is an MP3 you're listening to right now, this podcast, but you should really treat yourself and get the real deal. We're going to play some samples of both albums. The other half of this package is called Modern Primitive. Lights are on. 13 new tracks. Most of them were written or constructed or envisioned in the years before Passion and Warfare, but after Flexible. You with me now? Flexible is the album that put Steve Vai on the map when he was like 23, put out after working with Frank Zappa. And then in that mid-period in the 80s, of course, he got monster, monster gigs like lead guitars for David Lee Roth, which of course we're going to talk about in the later part of the episode, and Whitesnake. Systems are 
But in that time, he also had all these songs. So now he finally went back and revisited them, often re-recording them from scratch, but still based on the demos that he had on his quote-unquote infinity shelf. So this is one of those episodes where I actually remember to introduce myself. My name is Jude Gold. I'm a guitarist and guitar journalist based here in Southern California. We're going to hop in the copter and just go a few tax brackets up the hill, as I like to joke. Several tax brackets up. And we're going to hang out with Steve at his estate. It's a house. It's a beautiful house with amazing grounds. Everything you'd ever need, including the dream studio in the back. It's kind of a well-known studio. It's called the Harmony Hut. I'll put up some pictures on the uh, No Guitar Safe Facebook page. And if you've never been inside this this studio, it's amazing. It's like walking into Noah's Ark, sans apocalyptic flood, as I like to say. I wrote that in the article because this interview was for Steve I's first cover story in a while in Guitar Player Magazine, and a well-deserved cover story it is. And I brought the mics along. And he doesn't exactly plug in guitar and jam like most guitar players do on on this show, but he does pick up his guitars and plays them unplugged and he shows you exactly what he's doing. Like it's like you're in the room with him. It's like he is plugged in because he's playing actual tracks from the Pro Tools sessions. Because when we did this interview, he was still mixing modern primitive. It was really cool. And you got to envision this for me, if you will. Steve I sitting right in front of me, sitting in front of you. He's showing you these licks that you're going to hear. And he's completely either air guitaring them or playing them on an unplugged gem in his hands, Ibanez gem. And it's, it's like having Jack Butler from Crossroads, the famous guitar demon that he played in that movie, sitting there, full guitar faces and everything. He just gets so into it. I've just been so inspired since I did this interview a few weeks ago. It's it's just yeah, it's crazy how into it he gets and it just it's so wonderful. Dude is passionate. So yeah, quick thank yous to several people who made this particular episode happen including Steve Vai's publicist Keith Hagen set it all up, thanks. And Adam Johnson helped me edit this together. Greg Worth sent over those awesome wave files sometimes of course i'm not actually playing album files i'm just letting steve hit the space bar on his pro Tools session so you kind of hear it coming through the room through this i mean if you're in there those ocean way those ocean way monitors which i describe in the article as each being as tall as angus young which is probably accurate um they sound so amazing of course it doesn't come through on the little left right room recording but most of the time, I try to insert the actual album track. Other people, too, thank Andy Alt, great consultant friend of mine who's a really a good friend of Steve Vise, or at least works for him all the time, and has a really killer product called the Little Thunder. It's a humbucking pickup that is so smart. It adds incredible bass frequencies to your low strings, so you sound like a beast. I could play that thing all day. Of course, I normally play guitar on this show, like as an accompanist or whatever, just to kind of get the sparks flying with the guest or 
or accompany them while they're demonstrating something or just see what happens. This case, you know, I kind of just went with the flow, showed up with the microphones and everything, walked in, and uh, kind of let Steve lead it, lead it along. And uh, this album is so deep, and we get so deep on stuff that it really wasn't about jamming on this episode. It was about time travel and compositional approaches and technique. And trust me, it's going to be like Steve is playing right in front of you. So I hope you dig it. And let's get in the copter. As usual, you have so much going on. First of all, I got to ask you about the green paint on your mixing console. Is that <laughs> custom from Carvin or kind of like your legacy stuff? Well, I went through this phase where I was really into seafoam green. And it happened when my friend had purchased a old uh, Thunderbird car. Yeah, sure. And I just, you know, that color, it was totally redone. And the color was just, I couldn't get enough of it. So... I decided to uh, go on a kick, and that's when the seafoam green guitar came out. I wanted this 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 the console is custom built, and I wanted I didn't want it to be just the same old black kind of you know. And in decorating the room and creating the vibe of the studio, all of these things are at your disposal. I'm not one of those guys that says, "Oh, this whatever color, it's good enough." I like that's part of the creative process is to take in your environment and shape it in a comfortable way. So <clears throat> I thought, hey, seafoam green console. And then I got the couch to sort of match. The couch has faded a bit, but... Uh, right, right. What kind of console is that? It was... Uh, I designed it, and it was built by Steve Furlot at Tree Audio. I have an API, which I like very much. Right. I've used it for many years, but old consoles can be really challenging. A lot of maintenance. A lot of maintenance. So I decided to have a custom console built. And... There's two mic pre's that I really like, and one of them is the 500 series um, API, which API is you know mic pre, and they they're these modules. And what happened through the years is build, uh, designers um, started incorporating this size module and building different kinds of modules that fit. It's so amazing because, like, these EQs were custom-built for me. I, 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 des I designed them with Steve Furlot, and they're four-band with four cues and four, four sweeps, which is so rare. It's, I think that might be the only real four, hand-built four-band equalizers in the 500 series module. And then he made me these compressors, So, and these are API EQs. So I have the very best of, and it's a totally discrete class a console because it's hand built so i have my api mic pre's and i have the api eq which i like but i also have all these other various compressors that are 500 series uh and eqs that you can fit in there because various companies make them Beautiful. actually what i have in here is the bae neve type eqs and mic pre's yeah. they're really great i've compared the old, old 10, you know, 1073s with these BAE. Yeah. And the BAE just kick ass, man. Yeah. They're really great. Can't say I've compared them all back to back. That's a nice little Pepsi go, challenge that you oh, can no, do. Oh, no, I go really forensic. Yeah. You know, like I did, 10, I did 10 mic pre's and 10 EQs, all plugins. And for me, my taste, the API came out on top. 
and the the BAE Neve style was second. But these here are incredible. These were all custom built for me by Steve Furlot, and they they fit these modules. So really, it's a it, the, the and and I had it designed so that all the um, EQs are down here because usually most mm-hmm. the EQs are up here, yeah. which I don't really understand because you you have to leave the the listening window. Yeah, you got to reach tweak. over. Yeah, but I like how your thing has such a scoop on it. It goes. Yeah, because I wanted steep. the I wanted the speakers to be at a certain height, and I I didn't want to have to reach. Ooh, so can it's, I take a photo? Of that? Sure. Spectacular. So today, I mean, the, it's always fascinating to me to meet an artist in the center of the universe. You found the center of the universe. Seems like this <laughs> this building, this hut, the Harmony Hut, and then within it, sitting right there with. <laughs> Those EQs on that side, those on that on the other side at the right, and right in the middle, you got your Pro Tools window where you're working on yep. the latest track that you're going to be adding right. to Modern Primitive, correct? Right. Which one are you working on right now? You're mixing it right here. I'm in the middle of mixing a song called No Pockets yeah. that originated way back around the Flexible days, and that's when I had the band The Classified. And back in those days, you know, the, the progression for me was learning how to record and acquiring a Fostex quarter-inch 8-track machine and a Carvin console, and then I recorded Flexible. But shortly after that, I got some better gear, like I got a 24-track uh, 3M machine, and I just started going crazy, and I started recording, uh, and I had that band, um, the classified and I wasn't you know it was kind of just to enjoy playing songs I never really had aspirations of making records and touring I just wanted to play the guitar and write these crazy songs well yeah you would have to I mean everyone knows how disciplined you were quote unquote but you'd have to just want to do it to do guitar 12 well, that's hours the only a day way you, that's the only way you ever do anything is if you want to do it discipline doesn't work right. you know I mean of course on one level you have to apply your intention, but if you don't find any enjoyment in it, it just, what, why do it? You know, and if you do, how can you stop? Yeah. You know, why stop? So for me, it was always the fascination with hearing us hearing something in my head and not being able to play it, and then working on it, and then all of a sudden you can play it, and then recording and overdubbing and mixing, and it was always so fascinating to me. It's always been a kind of a joyful playground. And everything, I never had, like, back in those days, I didn't have great expectations. I didn't care, you know? I didn't have, uh, the, the idea of figuring out a way to, to record music and get it on the radio and get a record deal, it was just totally off my radar because I didn't want to deal with it. And I was, a, a, actually, in those days, there was something in me, for some reason, that was had an apprehension about being famous. I was kind of scared in a way. I don't know. There was some fear. I think it was something that uh, came from my childhood where somebody had said, famous people are crazy. You go insane if you become famous. So you, you, these things have a tendency to dig, dig a little corner in your mind. So when I was living in Silmar and, after, and doing Flexible, and then all that period after Flexible, there was just really just enjoying the day-to-day, every moment of excitement of 
having a song in your head, working on it. So I started to record everything. But my recording chops really started to evolve. And my choice of the kind of music I wanted to record changed. So after Flexible, there was a period where I had the classified, where I, I was writing a lot. We were playing songs, and I recorded some of them and just put them on the shelf. <clears throat> These songs always had a vision. It's sort of like if you're a writer, so if you have an idea for a book 35 years ago, and through the years, every now and then you go back to that idea and you're like, oh, God, I got to do that. I can't wait. You know, I, I'm going to do that. So these songs were sitting there. And then I moved on and started working on Passion and Warfare because everything had changed for me. I had evolved musically. My guitar playing evolved. You did like six years with David Lee Roth or... Well, like then that. I did Passion and Warfare. As I was doing Passion and Warfare, then the Dave Roth thing came in and the White Snake thing. So that kept getting oh, so put on the concurrent. shelf. Right. Yeah. Well, I was supposed to release Passion and Warfare before Dave Roth. Gotcha. But then when I got in his band, it didn't make sense. Right. So, uh, and then when I left Dave Roth, I, I finished passion and warfare and release that but 30 years later it was the 25th anniversary of passion and warfare so i wanted to do something a little special and i always had those songs on the shelf that i wanted to complete yeah and the most interest the most interesting thing for me is going back and listening to them on your infinity shelf on my infinity shelf yes I like that yeah uh going back and listening to them i just you know i was very zappa influenced at the time right and also you can hear this missing link because if somebody is familiar with my work and they know Flexible and then they know Passion and Warfare, it's almost as if two different guys made those records. It, completely different. You really hear the Zappa on, on Flexible. How do yes. you think it, it shows up in, on albums later like uh, Passion and Warfare? Oh, it's in there. Just his musical sensibilities to a large degree really resonated with me. You know, his ability to incorporate composition and fast little notes and odd time signatures. I just loved all that stuff. Other people were doing it, but not not quite as melodically or creatively or harmonically interesting or rhythmically interesting as Frank. So really, I was really absorbed in his music. But if, like I say, you listen to Flexible and Passion and Warfare, it's like two different people. But all this music in between is sort of like the missing link between these two records. It's like Cro-Magnon Vi totally. or something. Well, let's start with a Frank for a second. Now, what do you think you really learned like that you really took away from him as far as arranging music, crazy music, elaborate music, for electric guitars and drums and, and bass and keys and stuff? That you can do it if you want. Before that, you had a little doubt? <laughs> I mean, uh, it's pretty intimidating. Well, I did. I never had a doubt because my M.O. was... If you have a great idea or an idea that's interesting to you and exciting, just do it. And that's what I learned from Frank because that, that was his whole MO. He didn't let anything stop him, really. I mean, practically. He never expected somebody to do it for him and he never made excuses. Even if you have to make up new notation marks for the score. Or yeah, brand that's, new... that's really fun. It's, evo yeah. it's, it's, evo it's expanding. You know, you're completely raising the bar every time you do it. You're raising your own bar. I've got the, the tracks you sent me. You sent me six of them. Mm -hmm. the There's phone. actually seven because one of them is uh, 
two tracks, Mighty Messengers, so you're, that I could send you to mix. Right. I've got oh, about okay. 13 tracks. <laughs> oh, okay, cool. Well, but, maybe... the, but the tracks themselves, sorry, are songs that I p- performed with the classified back in the day that never were recorded that I'm recording now, or there's stuff that I recorded then that I'm completing now. Well, you know what? I think listeners and readers of the magazine would love to hear some specific information about some of these songs. I was thinking maybe we start with Bop, because yeah. that kind of reminds me of some of the Little Green Men kind of Zappa era yeah. influence. So what's going on here at the top with that? You've, you've always been so great with creating voices, like making guitars into voices or other instruments. Yeah. What's that first instrument we're hearing there? Well, the way this song came about is many years ago, um, when Roland came out with their first guitar synth, <clears throat> they sent it to me, and I was interested in fooling around with synths, guitar synths. And they asked me to do a couple of demo tracks, and I did. I, I just got involved in it, I, and I did like four or five but I sent them two, and one of them is a song called Essence that actually received a Grammy nomination, which is kind of odd. But one of the songs I didn't send was, uh, was Bop, because I was really just fooling around with the device, and I came across this jazz scat patch that goes bop, 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 boop, bop, bop, you know? Yeah. And uh, according to the, how hard you hit, creates a different syllable. Hilarious. So I was like, wow, this is cool. And I just improvised, basically improvised, the whole song and then just for kicks you know i put a drum drum beat and then i just improvise yeah. and i thought well i should do something with that someday and i threw it on the cell- shelf i don't know 20 years or something and then um every time i would hear it it would just say you're gonna finish me i know what you know and i would i knew in my head what i wanted it to be so for this record that's what i did i took so you it you had it on on the fostex tape or something uh and- it, it was all it was all in a um, in a sequencer program because right. it's all MIDI. But some of these tracks you had you digitize and threw them into Pro Tools, and now you're. Adding. Oh yeah, yeah. But with Bop, I only had that um, vocal and a drum beat. So what have you added recently to it? Everything. The first thing I added was I needed a bass, and I couldn't play. I didn't want to play it, and I didn't want to program, and I needed something really special. And I came across this absolutely incredible Indian, female Indian bassist named Mohini Day. Have you heard of her? Now I have. (laughs) She is a savant, man. She is as much of a contender as anybody ever. I just, you have to check her out. Just go on YouTube and type in Mohini Day and you will see some wicked ass bass playing from this little Indian girl. And um, I just sent her the track and she sent me back two versions of in like a night. Wow, I was going to say it probably took weeks. <laughs> no, she did it like after a gig one night in her hotel room, you know? And one was slap and one was with the fingers. And it was just, a, I was astonished, really, at how the, she was able to capture all the... Things that went, and all the right notes. It was, that song is really crazy. Yeah. It's amazing. And, and it's then very, I built everything else on top of it. 
And it, it just reminds me in places of like when you took the Close Encounters theme on Little Green Man. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and just that was, that's like an object lesson, a tour de force of musical arranging, the way you took those oh. five notes and arrange yeah. it so many different ways. There's, there's ways that I'm using those notes in that whole sequence that you're not even hearing. Oh, uh, yeah, it's like the more you <laughs> listen to it, the more you think you might yeah. hear some of it. But, so much uh, of it is built on that. There's also just it's such fun. A, it's I was going to say, there's such know? a sense of humor in your music, and I find a lot of great guitar players from from Eddie Van Halen to Lukather to Jason Becker. You guys are all hilarious. Um, yeah. What is it with guitar players and like a serious sense of humor? Satriani? Well, I think it's just the joy of entertaining yourself. Yeah. You know, it's it's that's what I look for. I look. I, I'm not a very heavy, intense, dramatic person. I like things that just make me feel great. When I hear something that I've done, that humorous kind of, that, that's like every day is Christmas. Is Ingve Malmsteen humorous? Speaking of guys who are- Oh, he's it. hilarious. Ingve? <laughs> I've met him like once or twice briefly. I figure everyone's hilarious, but I, I'm not, you know. Well, like anything, you have to look for that side in people. Right. And, and Ingve is one of the funniest, actually. He's so confident. <laughs> he's so Ingve. That's for sure. That, you know, I was just with him the other day. You know, we did a gig, a uh, charity event, and he was just so Ingve. is completely humorous. He's a force of nature. He is. He's a, he's a, uh, he's formidable, man. Who's the funniest guitar player you know? Mateus. Mateus Eklund. Oh, yeah, yeah, totally. I've he has to the most comical, impossible sounding sounds that anybody ever did on a guitar. It's true, yeah. I kept taking videos of him where he's used to, like, his children's Fisher-Price toys against the guitar pickups to make <laughs> make entire yeah. songs. Yeah, he's very creative. Unbelievable. Did you hear his last record? I think so. I've yeah. got a lot of his stuff. I mean, and it's I, called The Smorgasbord, but it's yeah. just, it's unbelievable. Yeah, he's, it's amazing. Yeah, yeah he's, he's a creative cat. Now, um, maybe we could take a little detour here to talk about your amazing tour that you have going and then come back to the, the record because the record's sure. coming out on June 24th. But Generation Axe, holy shit. Now, mm-hmm. first of all, G3, it's like not enough. You're going to got to do <laughs> a, a whole nother guitar supergroup. Hey, the more is more. I like that. Uh, that's an Ingve quote. <laughs> that's funny. I applied that once to Zach Wilde yeah. in, independently. Okay. More yeah. is definitely more. More is more. What's and all this less is more bullshit? I know. It's more, more is fun. And uh, I love playing with various guitar players in all sorts of incarnations. And G3 is, is a really great one. We got some G3s coming up in uh, Italy in, in uh, yeah. June. I think it's June. Guthrie and the Aristocrats on the bill. Yeah, yeah. That's going to be great. So, but, but G3 is a very different format than Generation X. G3 is three guys, basically, that do a whole set together, and then they get together and jam at the end. And that, that works out very nicely. But I always, I always seem to have a desire to make things more complicated. <laughs> well, I just look for variety, you know? So I always had this idea... It actually started out with the idea of what what it would it be like to get five really great female guitar players and make a record, you know, because there's some really great players out there. And to have a, rec- a whole record of five, five female players and then go out and tour with it and just produce it. So then um, 
I received a call from Miles My- Copeland, the manager, record company executive, and he... He's like Stuart's brother, right? Yes. Yeah. And he the managed police. the police and everything. And he was um, inquiring to see if I would be interested in being in a guitar festival that he was putting together. And I do so many of these things, you know, and, and it was the idea was like a touring entity with various players. And I said, well, I don't want to do anything that's going to step on G3 toes, you know, that's too similar. And I've, I've done that kind of thing so much. What can we do that's different? So then I presented this idea of having five. It's a brand, basically. And the guitar players would be genre specific. So in this particular in incarnation i thought who would be the the coolest rock intense kind of players for something like this because in my mind everybody has their their show and they have their songs but coming together as a cohesive unit as an ensemble of five guitar players is very different it's different than anything I've ever done, and it's different than anything I've ever seen or heard, because with these kinds of players, with all the sustain and distortion and chops that they have, the, the, the challenge is to create something that has an organic har- harmony to it. Do you, you understand what I'm saying? I mean, if you have five distorted guitars, and you're doing these wild melody lines you know, and arrangements... That could go two different directions. <laughs> yeah, it can go various ways. Uh, for instance, I just did an, a five-guitar part arrangement of Bohemian Rhapsody. Fantastic. Yeah, and it is just... I got every single voice. So are you guys going to play that? We're going to try. I did it, and I sent all the parts out to everybody, but... Uh, you know, it's the kind of thing where you really flesh things out in rehearsal. But the but the concept was to just imagine Bohemian Rhapsody with five guitars. To me, that's like... No, I'm with you. I used to take the Bach chorales and record all four parts with a lead guitar tone. Isn't there just something beautiful so be, about yeah. guitars and harmony? Yeah. So imagine five. Fantastic. So it's, it's this... There's not really necessarily going to be solo sets. From, yes, there is. So just, that's the majority just of the show to, to me. To yeah, us. I mean, it. I can talk about what the plan is, but it can change. Right. You know. So right now, before we get into rehearsal, what I'm kind of putting out there is that uh, you know we all come out blazing on a couple of tracks, and then each guy would do a solo set for about 15, 20 minutes, and then within it. One guy would come out and perform the final song with the previous guy, and then it'd be seamless. Sweet. You know, so there's no yeah. downtime, really. That's pretty neat. And then we come out and we play more, like, I, I did an arrangement of Highway Star. <laughs> nice. Highway Star of five guitars. It's fucking dope, man. Are you handing out sheet music to everybody, or just kind of separate recorded tracks? Separate recorded tracks. Now, let me ask you this. Maybe we could go through the other four or five guys. And just tell me exactly why. Like, what do you love? Say, we'll start with Ingve. What is it as a guitar, one guitar player to another? And you've studied so much guitar. What do you really love about Ingve Malmsteen that you want him on your stage as a guitarist? His technique or what he's done for the well, world he's of very guitar. colorful. He's a master. He has stunning intonation and breathtaking virtuosity. Obviously, he was uh, the, the, the the forefront of the movement. I know, I was right. there. Me when Ingve hit the scene, we all shit our pants because he was doing stuff 
that we didn't think was possible. And that's beautiful because that's how you raise the bar for everybody. When somebody, when somebody comes along and is doing something that's beyond the scope of what's been done, they do it for everybody. So now whether you like the way he plays or not, and you, everybody- I personally love it. <laughs> yeah, I think, you know, it's great. I love and his tone and his vibrato too. His vibrato is to die for and his tone is just, it's all in his fingers, you know? So now getting, you know, having him as part of this, I think is a great package because it is a very metal kind of a presentation. I mean, I could do another incarnation of this and invite people like, you know, imagine how lovely something would be with like, you know, myself, Eric Johnson, Larry Carlton, Steve Lukather, Robin Ford. I'm just throwing names out there. You ever think there. about doing something with Ry Cooter too? <laughs> well, I don't think Ry would ever do anything like that. I always wondered about that. That would be nice too, but it would be completely different. And that, and I just threw those names out there because they, they kind of work together, just like Ingve and Zach and Steve yeah. can work together. Totally. Well, let's keep going now. What about Nuno Betancourt? What, what is singular about his playing? Nuno is just solid, man. You know, he's really solid. He's got great chops, really great tone in his fingers. And um, he's got, you know, I, I, when I think of someone like Nuno, I, I believe that he can easily blend. You know, his tone, he's very blendable. Yeah. He, he will be a, a major player in the ensemble. Very versatile. Very versatile. You know, besides, I, I was just with him for a while. We did a, we were on a cruise together, and I've been kind of like seeing him and talking with him. And he's just an extraordinary guy. He's really with it. You know, he's 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 intuitive. I bounce a lot of things off of him, and he always seems to have a, a an insightful response, which is yeah. really helpful. He's yeah, he's a bright cat. Yeah, and he's got chops for days. Those cruise ship gigs are hilarious. I just did They're one. Great. I played with Jefferson Starship, the current version, and we just did the Flower Power Cruise, got back oh two days God. ago. Oh my God. Is Grace in the band? No, she hasn't. She's retired, but she's going to be, they're getting a Grammy this year. She's going to be there to accept it. A Grammy? Lifetime achievement. Uh, but isn't that hilarious to be on a boat with all these other bands? You're kind of oh, stuck a on a floating party. <laughs> yeah, it was great. I loved it. I got, the, I mean, it was it was odd for me because I resisted doing that for many years, and then when they approached me and were able to meet the price, <laughs> you know, we thought that uh, they would fill the cruise out with with because I was the first one they got, and they would fill the cruise out with like-minded artists. But I guess the guy that booked the cruise only remembers me from my '80s <laughs> purple sequin pants. You know, that was the Monsters of Rock cruise. Monsters of Rock shredders from the deep. So the cruise was very much um, sort of geared more towards 80s rock musicians. And it was great. I mean, it was so nice to see old friends and to hear that music again. And some guys were just stupendous, like, um, well, Uli John Roth was there. He's just, yeah. he's just a master. I watched Sebastian. him. Sound, I watched him sound check once. Uli, just, just amazing tone pouring off the amazing stage. Amazing tone. I've done White gigs hot. with him. Yeah, he's an amazing guy. And uh, Sebastian Bach, right. unbelievable lead front man. I mean, yeah. when you when you consider the quality of his voice, his ability to to deliver intensely, he's one of the greats in that regard. Because his voice is so there, his he can sing smooth and clean and beautiful, and he can scream like the Dickens. Yeah. What did you think about the overall experience of kind of like, you know, you're kind of, you're on this boat and you're kind of mixing with the fans anytime you walk out the door. Well, it, it, did you do it again? 
Um, yes, I would. Uh, the fans were very respectful. It was. It, I stayed in my room a lot. I mean, I, I, it was a little difficult to go out and just like, hey, let's go for a walk on the boat. No. And I didn't get off the boat, but I was working on Bohemian Rhapsody in my cabin, so that, that's when I got it done. Well, let's talk about some of these other casts that you have on, on Generation Axe. Of course, we got um, Zach Wild. Oh my God, Zach's just the best. He's he's just like a tour de force of testosterone-driven riffage. Yes, and you know, make sure you're not you don't get in the way. <laughs> but he he's also just such a great guy. You know, he's so, he's funny, funny, funny. He's he's smart. He's with it. You yeah. know, all these things. But he definitely has a. You see, all the guys that I'm uh, I'm, I'm that we have have made a commitment and also a contribution to the guitar in a unique way. Yeah. What to do the you think rock Zach's guitar. contribution is? I've I've interviewed him many times and said, "What do you think?" <laughs> His rock and roll attitude, his metal attitude, comes out in his notes in a in a fiery, fierce way. In that, uh, I mean, you know, when when Zach is vibrating a G, there's a B flat in there someplace. You know what I mean? Right. <laughs> you know? it's really wide. Yeah, and he's he's just authentically metal, good metal. Really, well, more than good. Right. You know what I mean? You know, you true want, monstrosity. Yeah, you watch other guitar players and you can tell when somebody is just kind of more confident and more unique and he's one of those guys yeah whenever i've met him or hung out with him he's just playing the whole time he's, he's got playing a guitar in his and, hand. and the thing about zach that a lot of people don't know is his ability to play beautifully on acoustic instruments and and sing his piano. ability to sing piano. He likes to, to do like bridge over troubled water with like grand piano. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, he's, and he likes that stuff. He likes melodic music. Let's talk about Tosin Nabasi. Well, the thing I love about Tosin is he represents a new generation of thinking musically on the guitar and playing. He, everything about him is an evolution. The guitar he plays, the amount of strings it has, his choice of notes. His, harmon his harmonic ear yeah. and his chops are just freakish, you know? I mean, I watch guys like that play and I'm just like, they got a lot of time. It's interesting, like, I think Tosin represents the new generation of, of just mind-boggling uh, virtuosos that have come up. And well, the w one of the ways, yeah, I'm sorry, go ahead. One of the ways that the world works is everything is built on top of everything that came before it. It's always been that way. It's never going to end. Um, at least that's what makes sense to me. Right. And you can see that in your own life, and you can see it in your own creative aspirations and your own creative output. So when someone like Tosin comes along, he's coming into the world just like we did with certain things on, on the radar. For me, it was Jimmy Page, Richie Blackmore, Brian May, Carlos, Al, Demiola, McLaughlin, you know what I mean? For someone like him, it's Ingve, maybe. I don't, I'm not exactly sure of his influences, but maybe it was me. I, I think I've read some place where he mentioned me. I imagine so. Yeah, so there's their look at when I came into the world and I saw all these guys playing, I said, okay, this is where it's at. What, how can I contribute? What can I do? This, th these are, this is my inspiration. And then you just naturally take it from there some some people you know i i took it from there but i didn't know what i was that i was evolving it 
And to even say that I, I've evolved it from my heroes is not quite right because there's elements and an aura and a personality in their playing that I could never evolve, obviously, because right. it's them. You don't evolve somebody else. You evolve yourself, but you take into account what's on your radar. So Tosin came into the world with stuff on his radar that was completely different than my generation of players. A lot of that is just the whole underground, uh, from that underground gent movement. You know, Meshuggah, I think, had a big uh, hand in a lot of the inspiration in that. Sure. But then they, they take it to another level. And the thing I love about Tosin is that he's not just doing complex music. There's this beautiful, or, or deeply complex organicness to it. And his choice, his choice of harmonies is what I really like because I hear shredders all the time that, you know, contemporary shredders that are just phenomenal with their technique, but it's it's the same kind of scales over and over. Whereas what I like personally, and that's fine, there's nothing wrong with that. But what I like is when somebody takes that dive melodically and harmonically, and he does that. So. Yeah. When putting together the Generation X, I was so thrilled that he was interested in doing it because it adds another dimension to the whole show. What, and what do you think when you hear him uh, like sometimes doing playing, you know, in a band, no bass player playing eight or nine string <laughs> instruments? I think it's fantastic. You, you pioneered seven string in a big way for the world of guitar. Well, it's just it's just part of the evolution, and I love it. It's it just if he was just going gong, 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 all day long, then I'd be like, well, it's a waste of a good string. <laughs> but he utilizes it in many different ways, big beautiful chords and that he does. Yeah, so so it's really um I mean, I've played that's an 8 string right there because I'm working on a part for Tosin and I was using Sweet. the eight, eight string, but uh, I've been answering. Uh, yeah, I think he uses. I think peop, some people are using nine string. I I can't. Yeah. I'm not comfortable on an eight string, and I don't want to go there. I do in the studio, like this. Oh yeah, this song I'm working on right now. I put an eight string on it, and it's fun. But to make that my main instrument, no way. Right. I think that's everybody that's on the tour for now. Mm -hmm. Now. What do you think you learned from uh, so many years of G3 about doing one of these multiple guitar player things that, like, what have you learned from all that that will help you put on a, and organize a, a better show this time? Maybe logistically or... Well, the thing that I enjoy most about the G3, which in the beginning, I wasn't quite sure uh, how I was going to fit in, you know? Uh, guitar players always, maybe not all but most have this um, desire to see how they stack up to others. And that's, I think, just a natural human instinct because it's how you evolve yourself. So I didn't really know how I was going to stack up in the beginning. I, w I just wanted to be sure that I could deliver. But when I got into the G3 environment, you know, Joe is like a Zen master. You know, he... He really that it knows how to offer space, and that's what made it so nice. You know, everybody had their space, and they can do whatever they want. And then in the jams, you you are forced to raise your own bar because if you got Satriani to the right of you and Eric Johnson or 
or John Petrucci or Ingve or any of the great players, yeah. they they're there because of their unique contribution, and they're gonna they're feeling the same way you do. How do I fit in, and how can I contribute on a on a really a powerful um, ensemble level? And the last thing you you want to do is compete with what they do because they're masters at what they do. But one of the the things that was most beneficial for me on the on the G three tour was being in an environment with these great musicians. The, they they encourage you to raise your own bar. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, so you're absolutely. reaching into your own bag of tricks because you don't you can't reach into John Petrucci's bag of tricks or Satriani's. It's too unique to them, you know. And why? So that's what I got out of it. It was you know one of the things. And Joe's leadership was you know just really um, it was powerful but transparent, meaning he just he you never get the you know he never acted like he was a, a, a leader of sorts. Right. Yeah, you know, he's, he's a very humble guy. Very humble. It's interesting to hear you say that you were wondering, you know, a little uh, hesitantly before the first time, would I fit in? Because that's what everyone I've ever talked to who's done the tours, like Luca Thur or other players, that they all say that it's a little nerve wracking the first time they're going on the yeah. G three tour to start the show or whatever and <laughs> step out there. But they all say it was an amazing. It was amazing. Experience. I mean, I, I one of the things that all of the G's that I've worked with have is a uh, fierce confidence in themselves. That's so cool. you you wonder how you're going to fit in but doesn't take up the majority of your focus. Right. The majority of your focus is I can't wait to get out there and kick ass. Exactly. There you go. With other great players. Well, maybe we could uh, go back to uh, Modern Primitive and mm -hmm. and listen to another one of these really cool tracks. Thank I you. type in my code in my phone here. Let's check out uh, and we are one. That's an interesting mm -hmm. one. Your work, you've got the great sustain on that solo. Sustain is such a huge part of your sound, like, you know, for the love of God. Is that, is a sustainer a big part of it the whole time? Or what's that interaction where you get these incredibly long notes? Well, and we are one, I wasn't using a sustainer at all. the magical chemistry for that sustain on that uh you will it and where you some, where did you remember was that an old solo from 30 years ago no you added that that's right. new and that solo for me is my penultimate achievement of phrasing on the instrument wow yeah because i worked when i you see the thing that's most exciting to me about being a guitar player is the fact that the instrument is infinite. Mm. 
there is no way you're going to tap it out. There's no way you're going to you're going to exhaust its potential. So with that in mind, I love more than anything evolving in delicate ways as a player. So one of the things that I focused on, I focus on more most these days is phrasing. And when I sat down to do this solo, I I made a loop of the solo for and I just played for about an hour and a half and I recorded it. A loop of the rhythm section. A loop of the the vamp. Right. And then I just soloed and I would do that every night because I just love doing it. And then I go back and this is a great technique for for um, that I would encourage guitar players to experiment with. So then I go back and I listen for any little unique kind of a riff or idea or sound that I never heard myself do. And then I take that snapshot and I I work on it. I make an exercise out of it. I make a whole kind of approach out of it. And then the next thing you know, it organically comes out in your playing. That's great. Yeah. Find so those little magical nuggets and like, oh, what's that? Yeah, like everything in that solo, that solo is a tour de force of unique phrasing, as far as I could tell. Is that what, when you say you feel like it's your penultimate achievement, mm-hmm. what do you mean, what you mean by that? Like you feel like this is an... I've never gotten that deep with my phrasing. Is that a, a magnet watch, a magnet uh, bracelet? You know, someone else asked me that. It's uh, my friend gave it to me. It's I think it's just stainless steel, but it's supposed to give you energy. Oh, it's magnet. I had one just like it, and I lost. I wore it for six years every day, and I'm trying to find another one. Dude, I could get you one of these tomorrow. Yeah. If I can't get you one, I will uh, give you this one. But this one's one's too big for me. It's probably. Yeah. It's the only thing I I don't really wear, and I'm wearing this because they put it on when we were in Bali. (laughs) It's good luck. You know, I'm with you that. Yeah. So that, that song, if you break it down, I know for me, I didn't settle unless I felt like every single thing I did, every note, every note had a personality behind it. And I love doing that. Now, it may not, it may go right over the head of most people. A lot of people will just hear it as vi-meandering. But the people who really resonate with the kind of thing that I do and the people who love playing the guitar in that very... Uh, dynamic kind of a way I think they'll find they'll get a kick out of it how did you uh, record it where, where were you standing where where was it right in this seat right here so you had the amp in the other room or yeah so you're going through one of your legacies or everything you know I have so many amps and I always end up using the legacy I, I've recorded on this record I've used probably all of them you know most of those amps throughout various songs or as a taste I've just, I, the, the legacy is just like my home. It just feels right to me. It's, it's got the right amount of sweetness, of harshness, of compression, of bottom end, of top end. But uh, actually, what I use a lot on the record is uh, these two old twin, um, Fender twin amps that Joe loaned me. Really? Bonamassa? No, Joe Satch. He, he, but, I was thinking Joe because he lives a couple blocks away or whatever. Yeah. He's got every amp under the sun. Well, actually, very interesting. Um, I had these two. The, the, Joe, Satch had bought them from or got them from Keith Richards, you know, and so they're these really old. I forget the year, but maybe you can check on that. And um, I just loved the way they sounded, but they were a little inconsistent. So I thought I'd love to take one of these on tour just to fill out 
a little bit of the sound of the legacy because sometimes I use two, three amps, you know. But I didn't want to go and buy one of those old amps and drag it around. So people started telling me, I started looking into who makes amps that are very consistent, that are similar to the old twins. And who, who do you ask? Joe Bonamassa. Right. He's the guy. He, he's really, he's, he's deep into that stuff. So I- I'm trying I, to guess, who, what, who, what company did he recommend? Victoria. Victoria. Boom. Yeah. Same time. <laughs> yep. I played one of those in New York, like a little- a little Princeton copy. It was it was a beautiful amp. I've yeah, he he said because I had a lot of different um, suggestions from various friends and players, and but when I called him, he said, "Look, I have all those amps. This is the one. Call this guy at Victoria. Have him make the amp for you." So I did, and I have it in there, and I used it a lot on the record, along with Joe's, uh, with Satriani's. So for, so for this song, for this that solo that maybe you're going to play, you were were you, were you overdriving the amps with something like throwing something? Okay, in front what of them? I what I do was is um, I usually rec- I set up the amps that I like, and it's usually a combination of tones with various amps, and I always record a DI, and then when I listen back, I hear what's missing in the tone, and I reamp. Cool. through another amplifier. And what I've discovered I'm doing, I did most on this was reamp anything that I didn't use the legacy on because the legacy is just the amp for me. But like with something like this and we are one. See like right there, I just I wanted to get really deep because with the pick, if you pick a particular way, you get that it's very intimate, you know? So this, this is my world and my way of thinking. Some people might hear and go, what the hell is he talking about? But you're a guitar player magazine, and I'm giving you my best piece, so I'm, uh, and what I was thinking, right. doing it, because maybe it'll encourage somebody to find something deeper in themselves. This, this note might be, this, this was so difficult, because it is one note being moved around with the bar, slides, bends, and everything. Very subtle, and it's right here. You know that- Dude, that was yeah. like a slide note. Yeah, but I love that. It's like a violinist mixed with like yeah. great slide And pattern. then this here, just, just so interesting. I just Dude, love that. That's amazing. Is that your? Is that maybe your Morley pedal or your volume knob? When you're that's a no. I can't do. I can't do that do with my volume, volume knob, knob. That's a, the little alligator volume pedal. Right. Right. Yeah. Very cool. Now and wait. Then, I'm still not clear on the the signal path. So that's the. Where's the overdrive coming from? You is that the the two twins? Well, what you're hearing is the legacy. Right. Is the main gist of the sound. Yeah. And then and then you wonder well 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 what what is it also that's in there that has because when you distort a signal it's a distorted signal and it loses some of its integrity so what i did was then take the di and send it out to the uh, fenders the um gotcha satch's amps and that's where they're, they're, and they're very clean so you hear the you can hear the touch of the clean amp but you get the sustain of the 
distorted amp. Yeah. Right. Amazing. That, yeah. Hang- and that right there, just that one note, that was, I had to sit with volume pedal and wah-wah at the same time and whammy bar and right. stretch and bend just for one note. I was wondering about that because, yeah, you're hearing the volume and the quack of the wah. Yeah. And the, and the, and the way that I, I'm, I'm, it's the whammy bar and everything. Now, this is how forensic I love to get. Because it's just one note, but it took my entire life to get to the point to where I could do that one note, and it's just. And it doesn't. It's not going to mean anything to anybody but me. Wow. <laughs> you know? No, it's. An... It's all just very, very yeah. melodic. And then this next thing coming up, and you're probably going to edit all this out, and that's fine. But Only if you I'm, want me to. I oh, think so it's, you could use whatever you no. want. <laughs> this but is beautiful. Th- this, this one, now this is something totally new for me where I was doing this technique, and I just started meditating on it, and then it started to come out, and it's this... It's all bar and fingers. trying to imagine what you're doing there you bar and fingers like kind of oh, like like um almost like a flamenco and bars well i'm not very good hey rocky can you bring me evo i'm not very good at finger picking i doubt that but anyway no it's true <laughs> i'm not kidding it's it's about as good as my slide playing which is virtually non-existent who needs to play slide if you can bend notes the way I you know, right? bend them? <laughs> seriously so then uh, you don't gotta tune it so that uh but if i get a hold of something and i focus on it I, I yeah. can dig. I can get some ground into it, and that riff was something as simple as, uh, you know, it's all this bar so and bending you, stuff. It's like a sequence of you're plucking, you're holding yeah. the bar, yes, sir. and then like double plucking the notes. Afterwards. Yeah, stuff like that. But it gets really good here. Wait, I love this. Now this part here is really cool. It's uh, it's all harmonics with the bar, so it's like. And then it goes into this part that's just so cool. Where I was doing this thing where the bar, I started to get this motion going where the bar would continue to go up and down and I would just be playing while it was going up and down which is hard because you got to pull it and play and not sound like you're yeah keep hitting the strings <laughs> and keep hitting the strings and then let it resolve it has to resolve on a note so it just does it so it doesn't sound seasick right so check it no. out Here. 
I love that one. Yeah, because you, you don't get that feeling any other way. You're pretty good in the guitar there, buddy. Well, I'm, I'm actually <laughs> not very good. I'm just very innovative. Very interested in it. <laughs> I'm interested. As well. Yeah. Wow, it's, you could totally win an air guitar contest, too, because you're playing, like, even when you don't have the guitar in your hands, you're, you've got every note, like, in your... That in stems your... from when I was a uh, 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 preteen, and, and I had destroyed several tennis rackets and brooms. No kidding. <laughs> you know, strum in the, a mirror. Strum them to death. <laughs> oh, I would stand, stand in the mirror and run, jump from bed to bed to bed like a wild man. There's a great kind of almost fuzzy tone on, I don't know if it's Dark Mater or Dark, dark Matter. Because it was spelled. Did I spell the, it wrong? The, on the file. I thought that would be kind of funny. Dark Mater. No, it's Dark Matter. Yeah, well, it, actually, it was, dark it was originally called Darth Vader, so maybe right. I got it mixed up. Now, dar- got, Dark Matter yeah. is interesting because you hear all that bending stuff, and there's no whammy bar involved at all. When did you record that solo? That's all new. That was a song from back then that was all re, re-recorded. All parts. Yeah, hang on one second. Hey, Thomas, can you bring me Girly? I'll show you how I did that, because that's really cool, too, because it's all... It's, there's a song on the Story of Light called... You don't have to tune it, buddy. <laughs> no need to tune it. No need to tune it. Is Thomas, he's, he's your famous tech. I've met him many times. Does he just always hear or what? Is no. He getting ready for the getting ready for the tour. No, he's helping me because I'm leaving for Dubai tomorrow. Thank you, buddy. Awesome. What are you doing in Dubai? I was wondering. Hey, Thomas, how's it going? We met for Yeah. You, you actually text for us when I played with Brendan Small at the Roxy, <laughs> and I was like, "Oh my God, Thomas is my tech for a night." Oh wow, how do you like that? And it was the shit. <laughs> Young at heart. Uh, I'm going to Dubai to speak at a YPO convention. I'm cool. giving a lecture. Dark Matter was fun because uh, on the Story of Light, there's a song called Gravity Storm. Yeah. And, and it. Yeah. And the whole thing has got these half step bends and. I love that. I was listening to that thinking, that's such a weird sound, but you made it into a musical thing. Yeah, and it was just a, just fun. You know, it was an idea. And this is why I'm talking about it, because this is a great way to create. You just, you, you break down all barriers and you imagine something. You, first, you tell yourself, I'm capable of doing something different and cool and interesting, because everybody is. The only thing that stops people is the belief that they can't. But you can, of course. That's what you're here for. From one perspective, so Very good. so when I when I conceived of something like Gravity Storm, it just started out. It just came out, you know. But there was there was a flavor in it. There was a feeling in it that just was kind of uh, had a, had a interesting vibe, and that was that pull, you know. So I thought, what if I write a whole song that has all these pulls, and so it, the song continually feels like it's going. And I did, and um, and that was Gravity Storm. And then there's uh, Dark Matter, which I took a similar approach, and I used the same guitar. And what that is is, um, it's the same concept, but I use chords. So it goes, you know. Is that, those are just cool. 
spreading hand bends. You're not actually bending the cord yeah. of the bar. No, but you got to get you got to get all the notes to bend evenly, and you can't and you can't, can't. And I notice you're not bending the high string all the way because that would come off the fretboard. Well, it would also um, well, it would be out of tune. You got to right. bend each string a little differently, but it just you work on it, and then it becomes you know and. Um, That's really cool. I, you know, you totally fooled me. I totally thought that was no, there's pulling no up bar, on the bar. No bar at all. <laughs> and this melody is very is interesting because all these chords are dominant seven sharp nine. So yep. the melody has to work on every chord, or else it sounds it sounds right. amateur. So You're using melody. like the good old Hendrix Sharp Nine version, which is very bendable. Yes, yeah, it's very. Uh, matter of fact, this when I when I first wrote this song, I thought oh, this is a little Hendrixy. Maybe hey, I maybe I shouldn't. That's never been a bad adjective, Hendrixy. It's not bad, and if you want to sound, unless you want to sound totally unique, right? But there's yeah. always you know, and it's in there anyway. There's no there's no escaping, and why would you want to? You know, there's no escaping yeah. the Hendrix influence. And for me, it's like, you know, there's a Hendrix, a Zappa, Brian May is in there. You know, all these things, they come together with a little bit of my own sensibilities. Um, but the solo, let me see what... But, but the, this, the melody is so interesting on this because it works with the chord changes, but it's a weird melody. You know? But let me listen to the solo so I know what you're talking about. And this, I love this. That's so nasty funk. Because it's... I wanted to get that feeling, but uh, so what I did was, if you listen, it's very awkward in that some of the bars have like one extra eighth note yeah. to give you that. Who's on drums and bass? That's me playing bass and Jeremy's on drums. Jeremy Colson. This, it just has extra beats here and there to give yeah. it that pull. I love it, man. I love that. It's, Sounds really, so it's like you're catching air, jumps. Yeah, and it's just, hold on now, hold on, <laughs> hold on, bam, you know? That's so crazy. Yeah, you got to do the Vi Funk album, man. That's yeah, just right? really funky. <laughs> um, and then, yeah, do you have the solo right there? It's a little bit. Oh, yeah, sorry.
Thank you. And and this part, well, that's what that is. Is uh, I was fooling around with a fuzz face because they are gnarly. Right. They just sound like ripping skin. You know what's what audio skin would sound like if it was ripping. So that that's and I use it quite often on the record. To you can hear it. It sounds like it's the guitar is breaking up, or it's not quite. Uh, it's like oversaturated. Which is, I love it, you know, especially this breakdown section. That, that's just heavy, heavy distortion. Yeah. That's my Jack White impersonation. So oh, awesome. Now is that a plug? Where do you, what are you running that pedal into the fuzz face? That I believe now that I I think that's the Victoria Victoria, Victoria. because the Legacy is a broader sounding amp, and I wanted I wanted it to be very pointy and clean, but completely overdriven to yeah. the point where it's almost <laughs> like the batteries are giving out or something. Melting. When did you write that song? Uh, uh, that's one of the ones that wasn't necessarily written back thirty years ago. I needed something that when I listened to the record, I, when I gathered all the material, it was so Cro-Magnon by there. There wasn't anything that had it's any Jurassic period. Yeah, so I wrote that one song, uh, this one f for the record. But I had it kicking around for I don't know five years. So it's kind of it's like almost like a bonus track or something. It's like a bonus track. It doesn't sound like the rest of the record. It did, well, I was assuming that it was kind of old school because you know because it's of that not it's fuzz not that that old school. But that that's maybe where the old school comes in is the use of those really old pedals. So um. Now, as far as Passion and Warfare, how how did you approach the remastering? What did you think it need now that you listen to it 25 years later? Mm -hmm. How did you spice up the mixes? Well, already, the, that was already a huge sounding record. Yeah, and it sounded much better before uh, CDs came out because when I made that record, there were no CDs really. I don't, you know, there was just cassettes and records. So it was a straight analog path through all of the best hand built gear. I remember back then. A story I read about uh, Van Gogh, where no matter how broke he was or how hungry he was, whenever he painted, he always made sure that he used the very best canvas, the very best paint, the highest quality materials at his disposal. And thank God, because now we have priceless art you know, to Interesting. enjoy. Yeah. yeah. So I thought, I want to do that. Van Gogh's my inspiration, so I'm going to go through any any length possible to get the best gear, test it to make sure it's the best, and try to, because when you capture something, it's it, you know? So, back when I made Passion and Warfare, I had access to all this great gear, and the record, to me, sounded really great. Um, but then when, di when digital came along, in the early days of digital, the technology that was available that was converting was pretty inferior to today's standards. So labels basically did one conversion, and that's your CD standard for the life of that record. So shortly after Passion and Warfare came out, CDs became available, but the digital technology that was converting this or analog signals was horrific. Wow. So then that became Passion and Warfare. So, the answer so I haven't even heard the real mix because I have the CD. Well, you hear the mix, but, but you, I mean, you're like not the, hearing... The true glory. Yeah. You'd have to buy an or, 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 old version of the vinyl. 
Yes. And then what people do is they release vinyl, but they use they use a digital source, and it's just it doesn't make any sense. So the big reason why it makes great sense for an artist that has a record that's 25 years old or whatever to remaster it is because now if you take the analog tapes and you put them, you know, you master them with someone like Bernie Grumman, who I'm going to be using, you've got now access to the top of the line converters, frequency rates, um, digital um, distribution networks that will distribute high-end digital. So it really makes a difference for people who are looking for that extra quality of sound. I was wondering, what tone did you use on... on um Eugene's trick bag when you were playing Ralph Macchio's part or in the movie Crossroads. What guitar and amp did you actually, because you, it looks like he's playing in the movie for anyone, if there's anyone who's been living under a rock and hasn't seen Crossroads. But that's a really fantastic tone. That's oh, going, thank you. That, that was my me Green Meanie guitar. The Green Meanie is a Charvel. Yeah, it was my first really good sounding Super Strat. Yeah. And I got it when I was with, in Alcatraz from uh, Grover Jackson. Cool. It's in a museum right now. And I used it on Eat em and Smile and the first Dave thing, and I also used it on Crossroads. And the amp, I believe, is a Carvin X100B for, stack. For the blues quote, the quote-unquote blues tone? Mm -hmm. It's amazing, because I, I, we always picture that you actually did it on a Telecaster or something. <laughs> through like I a can't play Telecaster. Fender Tweed or something, nah. the way the tone sounds. So you must have had a kind of in-between pickup settings or something. Yes. I didn't own any other amps back then. you're truly devoted to the just exploration and writing of music and you were almost afraid of fame yeah. and what it might do but whoever was producing the movie called Guitar Player Magazine they said we need a guy who looks like a demon who can actually play like a demon well, not who's quite. the guy? What did they say? They said uh, Rye Cooter called Guitar Player Magazine and said I'm scoring this film and I need some new you know the new hotshot guitar player and at the time, um, Flexible had just sort of come out and the flexi disc of the Attitude song was released in Guitar Player. The timing couldn't have been more perfect. So they played Rye, the Attitude song, over the phone and he said, that's the guy. And he called me, which was a stunner. <laughs> awesome. And then he came out to my home in uh, Silmar and he said, this is what I'm doing and we need to create a, a battle. And they would... They had tried to do it many other times, you know, various times, but it just turned into a jam. But I'm such a ham, you know, that, that's addicted to theater that um, I kind of visualized what a guitar duel might look like to the viewer that's able to see this guy did this, then that guy did this, and this guy did this. So I read the script and I said, yeah, I'd love to do this. And Rye, Rye and I built the whole battle sequence the head cutting duel and uh, then after it the director heard it and he was like whoa and he said you want to be in the movie 
Oh, okay. You want to play the part of Jack Butler, and, and at first I thought, I don't know. I've never really acted. I don't know what that world is like. I probably, I think I, they had asked me a couple of times, and then I'd say, well, I'll try it, you know, and and I read the script, and I thought, I think I could be this dark guy. I was already pretty dark back then. I mean, I wasn't really a nice guy. And, what? Uh, well, I wasn't a, I could be a real prick. I was myopic. <laughs> and um, Well, you've nicened up, I think. Well, I think age can do that, and also all my the, the studies, the spiritual studies, help a lot. They don't help. They, they're vital. They more than help. Um, vital spelled V A V A I T A L. Sorry, folks. So that's a, <laughs> that's how Crossroads came about. Now, did that suddenly boost your fame? Then were you suddenly? Yeah, unbelievably. I mean, you can be in a successful rock band and sell millions of records but one hit movie and it's you know it's very different i i was surprised everybody when the movie came out people recognized you in the street because it was a, a pretty big hit movie sure and um i knew it was fleeting which was good because i don't ever aspire to be so famous that i can't have a normal life it's right at a perfect perfect level for me i still live in normal i go out nobody bothers me every now and then somebody will come up and say oh hi steve you know and that's all nice but i can go out and just have fun with my family and stuff um but for a little time after crossroads i would go out and you recognized all the time and at first you're like oh hey yeah hey, you saw the movie okay hey, yeah that's me <laughs> right but then after a while it's it's it feels it can feel a little bit like an intrusion to always have people looking at you right and then you just get used to it but it died away it didn't distract you from your creation no like you've gotten to a really pure place with your uh, artwork now you, you <laughs> said it was doodles at first but it's, they've turned into these beautiful abstract art pieces some on big canvases well thank you well i think that um when i the, the art was such so much fun you know, and I highly recommend it because if you see the the beginning of what I was doing, I have zero artistic talent. I never painted, never did anything because I just I was always doing music, but it always seemed like a hopeless kind of a thing because I had so no talent. But I realized you don't you don't have to have talent; you just have to have a desire, and then you find. You find your your connections here and there. So when I started to do the painting, there there was two rules that I had. One was I wasn't allowed to think, meaning you just move by impulses. You look at something and you, you get an, an inspiration arises in the moment and then you just do it and then you look at it and, you, and next thing you know, oh, this is what it's looking like. And then it, it's so much fun. And you, And the other is you're not allowed to criticize it. I'm not allowed to say this sucks, or this is great, this is brilliant genius work, or this is just the doodlings of a madman. You know, you don't, none of that matters whatsoever. It's completely relative. That's, that's okay. That's easier said than done, especially with well, a guitar in Well, it's a great practice, though, because it's freedom. Uh, there's nothing more uplifting, rejuvenating, benignly peaceful as being content with what you're doing without judging it. I mean, when you joined David Lee Roth, 
I saw that tour, by the way. That was the first time I saw you. I was probably 17, Cow Palace, San Francisco. What did I you, remember. After playing with him for several years, what did you learn from him as a performer, as a band leader, or just as far as a showman? Or what did, how did he change your trajectory? Well, you know, when I look back at my career, I just can't believe how fortunate I've been. I've had all the right people in my life mentoring me at the most crucial and perfect time. From From the age of 12 through 17, my first great mentor was my high school music teacher, Bill Westcott. Every day for seven years, I learned how to, I went to his class and I learned how to write music, read music, compose, music theory from head to foot. And he was tough and he was a great mentor. And at the same time, I was taking lessons from Joe Satriani. And Joe was always great. I got news for you. He was always just great. And I was able to sit like I call it the Vi advantage, sit three feet from greatness for three, four years. That's what he said years. about you. I've talked to him about teaching you, and he just said that you had the technical, like the talent that like he'd never seen in another guitar player. Well, that's surprising to me because I always it was always a struggle for me. Music was very natural, but my technical ability took a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot of work. I think he meant everything, but yeah, yeah, totally. yeah. But but Joe was just very giving, and he shared everything and. He was a constant source of inspiration. He's, he, he has a brutally talented ear. I cannot tell you how, how on target Joe Satriani's ear is. You can tell because all those beautiful melodies, he's listening to them inside of himself. And that's where the good ones come from. So the thing that I picked up most from Joe probably was that every time he put his fingers on that instrument, no matter what he was doing, whatever came out sounded like beautiful music, even if it was just a scale. There was always an, uh, he always honored the instrument and there was a, a, a fierce delicacy. I know that sounds like a, a, a contradiction, but it, 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 that's, you can see it. And he had it when he was 15 and, and, and he was my teacher. So that was my second great mentor. And the third one was Frank. No, no way to quantify everything I learned from him. And my fourth was David Lee Roth because Dave came out of the shoot with, you know, chutzpah and charisma. And when he was the rock star David Lee Roth back in the uh, day or even, you know, to a great degree now, he was just oozing with confidence and intensity. Nobody knows how intense that guy is unless you're working you know with him and and he worked very very hard with me you know because i was just this um naive awkward gawky kind of a uh performer musician not i mean i was with frank but with frank it was all about playing all the right notes and there was no audience it was all frank but with dave you have to be able to reach the guy 20,000 people back, you know? And he, he, he was a great mentor for that. I mean, can you imagine all these incredible ingredients that I've had? Yeah. What I should show, be better. What did he show you? <laughs> <laughs> well, he just, uh, on many levels with Dave, it was just business. There were certain ways. But uh, to navigate in dealing with the press, he's a master. In being on stage and moving... And being a effective performer, yeah. he was a master. He, we, we worked on that. He'd watch me move. He would critique it. 
You see, he would critique it. He wouldn't criticize it. There's no right. value in criticizing. It only creates more badness. But by critiquing it and being open, uh, you you improve. You you expand. So the way that I would move, you know, he he, he worked with me on that. And I was I was like a just a noodle you know i look like an upside down question mark with hair <laughs> and he he got he kicked my ass he hired the leading female bodybuilder in the world kate baxter i think that was her name and he taught me how to work out and we were he dragged my wimpy ass to the gym every three out of four days doing these intense workouts like intense and um, that helped me develop a more of a healthy perspective on my body and my physicality. And I needed that because I didn't have that with Frank. I was in terrible, terrible, terrible shape. I almost didn't make it through the Frank tours, you know. But wow. with Dave, it was like, yeah, you know, he got me in shape. So Teach you how to kickbox? Not quite. He, yeah, he yeah. did. Yeah, he did. Yeah. Well, he hired a guy and we were kickboxing. We you did a lot of things together. You and Ingve can battle it out on the boat then, because he's known for his kicks. <laughs> oh, is he? Is Not he a kickboxer on the tour? No. I, oh, you mean just on stage? He just does those metal kicks that are just epic. Yeah, they are yeah. epic. Yeah, and uh, kicks his I, picks and he stuff. He kicks his picks, and that's it's funny because yeah, I started kicking my pick at his show just for kicks. <laughs> there you go. Oh, you know, I wanted to um just before you go just go over the rig that you're going to be bringing on generation axe tour mm -hmm. what it obviously two legacies probably on running two legacies um my my axe effects which i use for effects uh, a couple of stomp boxes same old you know nothing too well, you got like the the whammy pedal and the i got the horsey. i got the whammy pedal um gemini the gemini i still use the gemini i love that uh, a little alligator. Well, actually, the um, the Axe FX has a built-in volume. So for simplicity, I just excuse me. Right, because it's I on use the, that. It's on the controller, the Axe FX yeah. control board, mm -hmm. PC, whatever. Mm -hmm. I know this, but and and um, I swap around between Bad Horsey and the uh, Dunlop Waz. It's according to the gig. Okay. Right. What kind of strings are you? Ernie Ball. Ernie Ball forever. Well, Ernie Ball for many many years now. But in the earlier days, I used different strings, whatever I could afford. <laughs> Demarzio cables or everything's Demarzio. Oh yeah, I've, I've hung yeah. with with Demarzio a few times. Larry's a great guy. Uh, the, all yeah. these people I've had such long. Give me a bunch of these cables. Yeah, those are really good cables. Yeah, really stylish. They're very too. expensive. He he. Larry is a connoisseur of fine things. Just what he did with you know with his his pickup brand is one thing, but uh, he's constantly looking for the very best solution. I love that about guys like him and Sterling Ball. No matter how many other things they may have going on, there's always a deep interest in the expansion of their of their product in a practical, accessible way. And Larry just doesn't let up until it's exactly the way he wants it because he can. Well, and that's when you get those cables. And, and you know what is so beautiful about Larry is that he's... An incredible photographer. Yeah, you I know, mean, totally. And he's got all the, you know, all of the things that he touches, all have that high quality to them. He shoots and he's all a, you guys. Yeah, and he's a foodie. 
Yep. I've Whenever he's in town, to, uh, we go to the <laughs> coolest restaurants and he knows the best dishes and he's like best buddies with all of the best chefs in Hollywood, yep. you know? It's, it's just such a great, fun guy. Yeah, he's a classy dude, man. I've uh, yeah. had a couple of great meals with him. Um, let's see. He's running this. Do you think he'll have the Victoria on the side too, maybe? or? Yes, I think. I'm, I'm, well, not on the not on the Generation Axe store because there's just too much. Too uh, many amps on stage. Yeah, too many, <laughs> too much stuff going on already. So I'm trying to keep it as simple as possible, and it'll be two cabinets, two heads, and a pedal board. And you run stereo. You don't do the left. You don't do the wet, dry, wet thing. You do. I the, never just, could understand that. You just have it kind of going wet through the stereo through the two cabinets, the yeah. two amps. Like choruses and yeah. reverbs. The moment you, for me at least, the moment you split it and you've got dry on one side and wet on the other, I just don't get that. Right. Because as soon as you put a mic in front of it, what's the, what's the sound man going to do? Is he going to pan them both in the middle? It's not stereo, really. What and about? is he going to pan them left and right? Then you've got the guitar over here and the and the effects over there. You're not, you know. It's what about wet on the two outsides and dry in the middle and he can you're still it's created for me it's creating an imbalance it, it's creating the potential for somebody to screw up the mix once it leaves your hands exactly you got to and really, not be yeah. what you want so when you're mixing everything and it's coming out stereo and if you want to put the effect on one side and the dry on the other because that's what maybe the song calls for then you can do that or if you want it to be stereo with all the delay, uh, uh, you know, with only with delay only on one side or chorus on the other, or a big fat stereo chorus, of both sides going like this, with delay coming out in stereo, I have one instruction to the sound man: pan it hard left and right, and that's it. Yep. And then it, well, yeah. I'm gonna let you go, but I have one other question. When you were at Berkeley, I think you were there with a mutual friend of mine. We all just love this guy so much in the East Bay, San Francisco Bay Area, across the bridge. He's our, our guitar Yoda, Lauren Lieber. Oh yeah. What? You, so I always heard that you were you admired him, or you. And that's, I always wanted to tell him more about that. My gosh, Lauren Lieber. He could play anything. He was a, a complete freakazoid. When I was going to Berkeley, he was the very best, bar none, the fastest guitar player I've ever seen in my life, and not scales. He, this guy was is like a almost like a savant, like a genius, because he would be able. He would write a scale. Uh, he would create a synthetic scale out of any notes he wanted, and within an hour, he would know all the chords all around the entire neck, and the riffs. He could <laughs> play shred. He was the first shredder that I know, like yeah. real, real shredder. Today, nobody can even come close to what, in my mind, what Lorne was doing in college. Because he had this, everything was picked, and he would go across the strings, and uh, and the music was so cool because it was so fusiony, you know, and 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 rich in harmonies, and he was just brilliant, and we all looked up to him. He was like the 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 guy at Berkeley. You are a very motivational speaker. You know, I remember we, I, I used to be the director of the guitar program at Musicians Institute. Oh, okay. And I had you and Andy Alt there. We were doing like the guitar oh, yeah, TV yeah, thing. Yeah, sure, I remember. Andy created that, the great thing, guitar TV. Mm-hmm. And you said to every, all the students, you said, don't say that you're going to do it. Don't say that you can do it. Say, I I'm am doing, doing it. I'm doing it. That was sweet. Yeah. I would, yeah. yeah, you should be hired all over the world to do these kind of talks, man. I am. <laughs> I'm you doing gonna, it. You playing guitar? <laughs> You're doing it. Whoa, 
So, yeah, you heard it from Steve. The only thing keeping you from doing something amazing, different, and innovative is the belief that you can't. So don't believe that stuff. Don't believe it. Take it from Steve. You can do it. Steve is awesome. So happy for him to have released his incredible double album. Congratulations, Steve. I hope that we uh, covered it in a, in a way that does it justice. Steve was also so cool for uh, making time for us, for me, the day before he's off to Dubai. That's a plane ride. And soon after that, he had to go out on Generation Axe tour, which of course by now, Generation Axe, the first tour of that has uh, already happened. They did like 27 or 28 shows or something. Amazing. But it will probably happen again in the future, it sounds like. So thanks to Steve for telling us about that. Gotta thank Guitar Player Magazine and GuitarPlayer.com for their continued support of my podcast, No Guitar Is Safe, and of course, Zoom for the Zoom H6 Handy Recorder. And I use the heck out of that thing on this show. You know what? Let's thank Joe Satriani one more time, too, because he's friends with Steve Vai, and his vibe was definitely felt on this episode. But also because he stepped up to the plate to be our guinea pig, to be the first guest ever on this show. And we really appreciate it. So in the words of Joe Satriani on that show, to quote him and his music teacher, is that Westcott? I think that was Westcott. Keep it alive till you're 95. <laughs> 